I know everybody's familiar with the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, but... Actually, I'm not. Right, and that's the thing. Is That's kind of what I'm getting at, is just because you know the name doesn't mean you're familiar with the story, right? Right. So, we've all heard the name, but do you really know the details? was born February 29th, 1960 in El Paso, Texas. His parents were Julian and Mercedes Ramirez, and they had five kids, which Richard was the youngest of the five. Uh, Julian, his father, was he was uh, a former Mexican native, and he worked uh, as a police officer in Cuidad Juarez, which is a town right on the border of Texas and Mexico, and I don't know, it doesn't really state which side he worked on, whether he worked on the Mexican side or the Texas side, but I'm assuming, and I don't, don't shoot me here, but I'm assuming his, his parents were Mexican citizens, illegal aliens, I don't know, I, nobody really went that far into that, so Mm -hmm. regardless, he was born in El Paso, so it doesn't matter, um, so he worked as a police officer in Cuidad Juarez, and then later on he went to work at the Santa Fe Railroad. According to reports, he was a major alcoholic, and he was said to be severely abusive to his wife and his kids. So that always helps in creating a a new serial killer, you know? Mm-hmm. If that's your goal. That's how you do it. Yeah, so interesting little factoid is that two years old, a dresser fell on his head causing a nasty laceration and at five uh he was knocked unconscious by a swing and then started experiencing epileptic fits and then at 12 years old richard would start hanging out with his older cousin miguel and miguel would have a serious influence on how richie turned out later in life and that's because miguel was a decorated green beret in the vietnam war uh and Later on, it would kind of it would come out that he was actually a major serial killer and rapist in Vietnam. In Vietnam, what like during the war? But was he what side was he on during the like he was in for America? He was, yeah, he was a Green Beret. Oh, he was a Green Beret, okay. and he so, was over there basically raping and killing women. And it's because of people like that that. Other countries think Americans are worthless pieces of crap. Uh, Also, he documented all of his killings, mutilations, and rapes with Polaroid pictures, (gasps) which he would show to Richard, of course. Mm -hmm. And instead of being repulsed, they said he was fascinated and kind of drawn towards them. It's like the handbook to how to create a serial killer. Uh, For real. I mean, this is... it's This guy, Miguel... You can credit him with every killing that Richard Ramirez ever did. Yeah. I guarantee you, if this guy wasn't in the picture, things would have been hugely different. Of course, while they were hanging out, Mike would also give him weed and beer. So wow. at 12 years old, I don't care how you feel about weed, yeah. you know, 12 years old, that's never okay. Yeah. So, um, and kind of as they would hang out and smoke weed and drink... 
Mike would tell him stories about his crimes in Vietnam and coach him and give him tips on how to do it right. Wow. And he told Richard, having power over life and death was a high, an incredible rush. It was godlike. You control who lives and dies. Wow. So this is the guy that's raising 12-year-old Richard Ramirez. <sighs> Can someone say child services? Good Lord. Right. But, I mean, I guess if his dad was abusive, yeah. that's going to drive him away from his family and want to get him, want him to get away. And then you've got this cousin that is a complete pile of shit that is who he turns towards. And now you've got a role model that is an absolute evil maniac. Yeah. So uh, in 1973, so this is, he's 13 now, uh, Mike got into an argument with his wife and shot her in the face, <gasps> killing her in front of Richard Ramirez. Oh, dear. 13-year-old Richard Ramirez. Mike uh, went to court, uh, was tried for the murder, but he was acquitted by reason of insanity caused by PTSD from, of course, his time in Vietnam. Oh, dear. He spent four years in the Texas State Mental Hospital and was released in 1977. So by the time... Well, I mean, that's... I guess they figured they cured him, you know? I mean, we know so much about mental health now that, of course, in 1977, you know, I'm sure they were, they knew everything. They knew exactly what they were doing. I don't know. I've never understood that. To me, you can say somebody is acquitted by reason of insanity, but we don't even know how to cure somebody now. We don't have a clue how the brain works. So how are you going to say that, oh, well, he's good to go. We can let him go now. Why? Because he's medicated and he's a vegetable and he hasn't tried to kill anybody lately? I don't know. It's I feel like that's a whole other can of worms that we could get into, but it just, there's yeah. never been a mental health um, push in this country to really try to figure out what's going on and try to help because that's a problem. I mean, there's there's so many of those issues going around and it's really, it's sad. Which kind of contributes to the homeless society, which, I mean, is basically what Richard ends up as. I mean, he's a vagrant, right? He's a, he's a, he's a wanderer. Like the guy has no roots. He's just lost. But anyway, so by the time, by the time, uh, Mike gets out of the mental hospital in 1977, Richard is now hanging out with a different relative who was a peeping Tom. What the fuck? So, Roberto, and I didn't get his last name, but I would assume it's not Ramirez because it's his brother-in-law. He was married to Richard's sister, Ruth. When Mike went to the mental hospital, Richard moved in with Roberto and started going with him on his nighttime peeping trips where they would basically just walk around and try to get glimpses of unsuspecting women through their windows. So, here we have a kid who's already been raised you know, for over a year with this absolute psycho who ends up murdering his wife right in front of him. But now you've got the next guy who's teaching him how to be stealthy uh, and, you know, go around and spy on people. I mean, it's is you're literally creating a monster. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like you're just like, 
<laughs> reading off the handbook. <laughs> I mean, this is, yeah, for real. So, of course, upon Mike's release from the mental hospital, he began hanging out with Roberto and Richard and would accompany them on their little expeditions throughout the town, spying on women at night. So now you have a peeping Tom, a former Green Beret who is trained in everything military, right? Green Berets aren't, this is not Army. This is not, I don't know. Is Green Beret higher than Marines or is it, um, is that the Army's version of the Marines? Let me look it up because I want to say Green Beret is the Army's version of the Marines because the Marines is the Navy. Uh, Army Special Forces, yeah. So Green Beret, so so this guy's a Green Beret, which is the equivalent to the Marines in the in the Navy. These guys go through the ringer. So he's not just good at killing; he is a professional at stealth, killing, fighting, right? Anything, all things violent. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got a peeping Tom, <laughs> who's been doing this apparently for years, uncaught. And you've got a Green Beret, both basically giving lessons to a now 17-year-old boy on how to stalk and spy on. And of course, I mean, what's this going to lead to, right? Murder, rape, everything else. Who knows? Right. So what what the hell could go wrong at this point, right? Yeah, so he's like basically teaching him how to be an unofficial... Yeah, Green I mean, Beret criminal. This is a this is a military taught serial killer rapist. I mean that's all right. That's fucking scary. It's very serious. So during his teen years, and it doesn't really say what when this started, but he Richard got a job at a local Holiday Inn where he would, of course, use his newly learned skills of stealth to, uh, well, coupled with his key card to rob sleeping guests and apparently it was reported that he had fondled two underage girls in an elevator but he was never charged or prosecuted for that so we don't know there's no details there uh he eventually got fired after he entered a woman's room and tried to rape her uh her husband came in and beat the shit out of him good uh when the when the police arrived he was unconscious They arrested him, and they charged him with multiple felonies. But, as we talk about so many times in these stories, you know, this could have ended here, right? This could have been 10 years in prison. Who knows how long? I mean, I get it's a first offense, but this is is major. And, you know, coupled with any possible anything else coming up, they could have put him away for a while. And yeah. really put a stop to, or at least a pause to what was going to come. But they had to drop the charges because the couple, who were from out of state, declined to fly back to Texas to testify. Oh my god. Right? I mean, it's not their problem. Not our problem. Not our job. We don't care. Although, I don't know if it's different now. I feel like they, the state can, can take up a charge. Whether you decide to prosecute or not, right? If you if you decide you don't want to press charges, and the state feels like it's violent enough or it's it's serious enough, the state can take up those charges even if you don't. Mm-hmm. 
press charges. So I don't know what happened there and why that didn't happen, other than maybe this was the only evidence they had. Yeah. But I feel like they could have gone to that Holiday Inn and gotten statements from every single person that worked there, and I guarantee you people knew or at least had an idea of things he was doing. I can't imagine he's keeping all this to himself. He seems like, I don't know, I feel like he wouldn't be what you would expect a professional hitman to be like. This is a kid. You would think he'd be talking to somebody. Yeah. Even if it's other kids. But regardless, so this was charges dropped. Nothing happened. He's fired, but he moves on. Well, I mean. So. Yeah, he's fired. So. Yeah, he lost his job. Definitely grounds for dismissal. Yeah. So in 1982, at the age of 22, uh, Richard Ramirez moves to California, and he was staying in an apartment near the Tenderloin District in San Francisco. You know about that? The Tenderloin District? The Tenderloin. Have I not Mm -hmm. told you anything about that? No. So I've been there. I actually had to go to California. It's an area in, in in downtown San Francisco that's of, I don't know how many blocks long, uh-huh. but there is a big mural on the, on the fence, on a fence. Let me see if I've still got the picture. You've been there? Yes. I actually had to walk through the Tenderloin. It was, I, not a whole lot scares me, <laughs> but that one, I was nervous. That was what, weird. Cause it, when were so you what there? happens? So, uh, a few years ago, I was working in San Francisco. Oh, you were working there. Okay. But I had to go get a passport, and I went to the passport office. But I parked at one spot because I thought that was where the passport office was. Uh-huh. And I ended up going into this building, and it's this big marble building. Like, the whole freaking building was marble. All the walls were marble. It was crazy. I get in this office and it's like five sleazy looking dudes in shitty suits. Uh-huh. And they're like, what can we do for you? And so I start talking to them and they're like, oh yeah, okay, well we can do that. It's going to be $900. <gasps> and I was like, what the fuck? And I was like, what are you, t-? And I was like, why the fuck is it $900? And he goes, oh, well, you know, we we can do it faster. And I was like, faster than what? He was like, then the passport office. And I'm like, this isn't the fucking passport office? And he was like, no, 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 that's over there. And I was like, what the fuck is this then? He's like, well, we we expedite it. And I was like, you guys are con I left there, and then I thought, well, it's not that far. I'll just, you know, just walk the rest of the way. Right. And it wasn't far. It was only, I don't know, five blocks, I guess. But you had to walk straight. Longest five blocks of your life. Well, you had to walk straight through the Tenderloin. Okay. And when I first got to the Tenderloin, I was like, you know, I've heard of this place. And I took a picture of the the mural that says Tenderloin on it. And I, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Well, then you start walking through, and it is, I mean, it's Homelessville is mm-hmm. what it is. It's just yeah. every type of druggie, and they don't care. I'm talking cops driving by, and these people are injecting into their arms Wow. Like, you look at them, they're like, what are you looking at? <laughs> I mean, it's just, they don't give a shit. Yeah. It is absolutely crazy. So, wow. yeah, I mean. Uh, so it's rough stuff. 
Well, there were people taking a shit in the street. Oh, dear. Uh, there was a girl taking a shower in the, like, the gutter on the side of the street. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, she's trying to be clean, you know. Yeah, you know. She had, like, a trench coat on, and she was getting little handfuls of water. Yeah. And doing her thing. And bathing, it was, yeah. I mean, there's countless people passed out and probably mid-overdose. Yeah. Just chilling. It's, it was, it was crazy. It was absolutely insane. So anyway, this is the tenderloin. And I don't know what it was like back in, what is this, 1980, 1982? I don't know what it was like back in 1982, but I know what it was like in 2018. And it was, that was crazy. Oh, so that was just a few years ago. I'm thinking. Yeah. Many, many years ago. All right. So, so when he gets to the tenderloin, he would work as like a mechanic and just kind of do odd jobs all around the area and people near him said that he was fascinated with satanism and he would play acdc's song night prowler on his radio on repeat over and over again wow so i don't feel like he was hiding it <laughs> you know yeah. what i mean that that kind of goes towards what i was saying earlier where it's like you know he's he's telling people he's got to be telling people yeah and they're just like man what a weirdo and not reporting anything. So in 1984, uh, Richard would commit his first documented murder. So it's, it would, I guess it's just kind of important to, to realize that this is the first murder that's been attributed to him. Who knows if there were others and there's chances are there were right. Yeah. I think my guess is there's probably many others along with an unusual amount of cats, I guess. <laughs> you know, they never did mention that. There was no mention of animal cruelty or anything like that. Yeah, I'm sure there was. And I, well, but you they know, so, they thought it was not as important as the rest of the stuff, so they don't well, talk about it. I don't think so because and I'll and so there's Philip Carlo wrote a book on the Night Stalker, and. He apparently did hundreds of hours of interviews with Richard Ramirez himself and other people like Ruth, his sister, or his sister, other people involved in the family. I feel like that would have come out and he would have said something about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that never came up. So I don't know that that was, I mean, I don't, that's not a requirement for a serial killer. It's just right. another indicator. Yeah. But it never came up, which is, now that you mention that, I never thought about it, but that is kind of odd. So, uh, nine-year-old Mei Leung, a Chinese-American, she had reportedly lost a dollar bill and went with her eight-year-old brother to try and find it around the neighborhood. Somehow, she got separated from her brother, and she ran into Richard. And, of course, being the ever-helpful serial killer... He asked her what she was looking for, and she explained that she had lost her dollar bill. He tells her he knows where it is. He tells her to follow him, and he leads her into the basement of her apartment building, where he beat, strangled, and raped her before stabbing her to death with a switchblade and hanging her Jesus. from a pipe by <gasps> her shirt. Wow. And when her body was discovered, they said that it, it looked like some type of ritualistic killing. Yeah. So her brother eventually found her body and 
her brother? Her her little eight year old brother was oh my the one God. who found her body. Uh, That's not okay. So of course police show up, and the crime went unsolved until 2009, when police finally linked the DNA evidence to Ramirez. Wow. So he was already he was already on death row at this point, so it didn't matter. They didn't even he was never even officially charged with the murder. So this was not even until 2009. This wasn't even on their radar for him either, right? So that's why I'm saying there's there's others. They just don't. They haven't identified him yet. Yeah. And in 2016, police reported that there was DNA evidence from a second suspect from that crime scene. But that suspect at the time would have been a juvenile and was never charged due to lack of evidence. And not only was he never charged, he was never identified publicly. So it almost sounds like Richard was trying to create his own Richard. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, which is another scary thought. Yeah, definitely is, for sure. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, so moving on to June 28, 1984. So Richard would be 24 years old at this point. 79-year-old Jenny Vincow was found brutally murdered in her apartment in Glassell Park, Los Angeles. So he has now moved from San Francisco down to L.A. Uh, she had been stabbed repeatedly in the head, neck, and chest while asleep in her bed. And her throat was slashed so deeply that she was nearly decapitated. Oh Ramirez's God. fingerprint was found on a mesh screen that he had removed to gain access through an open window. And this murder would be used to establish his M.O. of breaking into homes, committing particularly vicious murders, right? Mm -hmm. And then burglarizing his victims either before or after killing him to kind of support his cocaine addiction and pay his rent. And that's pretty much all he was worried about was raping, killing cocaine and having a place to sleep. Yeah. Uh, so, wow. So on March 17th, 1985, 22-year-old Maria Hernandez was attacked outside of her house in Rosemead, California. So she had pulled into her garage, got out of her car, and Ramirez was, I guess, waiting around the corner. Walked in, shot her in the face oh, with a 22 caliber handgun. Oh, my God. The bullet ricocheted off her keys that were in her hand. What the fuck? Because she put it, well, she put her hand up uh, to yeah. like block, right? And the bullet ricocheted off the keys and didn't kill her, but she l fell down and played dead nice. until Ramirez left. That's like every childhood like right? experience when you're like, <laughs> you're terrified in your room. And so you just lay there like, okay, if you I'm just, dead, if I don't move, they're they going to think they've already killed me and they're going to move right. on to the next. <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't know how many times that works. I've worked for me every time. I'm still left. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I guess in that case, it's worked every time for me, too. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. It's not the positive outlook in life, you know? Yeah. Okay, so he moves on from her, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then he goes inside the house where Dale Yoshi Okazaki, her 34-year-old roommate, heard the gunshot and had, like, ducked behind the counter. Uh-huh. She saw Ramirez come into the kitchen and picked her head up to, I guess, look and see what was going on. Yeah. And he shot her once in the forehead and killed her instantly. Dang. So, within an hour of killing her, right, Ramirez pulls 30-year-old Sia Leanne Yu, last name Y-U, uh-huh. out of her car in Monterey Park and shot her twice with that same pistol and then took off. She was pronounced dead upon arrival at the hospital. Wow. Yeah. So what happened to the girl that played dead? She lived. She survived. And of course, wow. right, two murders and an attempted third murder yeah. in one day would make the media go crazy. They actually named him that day. He was described as curly-haired, with bulging eyes and wide-spaced, rotting teeth. Yeah. And they called him the walk-in killer and the valley intruder. I want to say valley intruder was his first name, the, the first time they named him. I don't know where walk-in killer came from. That may have been another, just another news network or whatever. But valley intruder, I think, was his first prominent name Yeah. before, before the Night Stalker. You know, this is the first mistake of the media, giving, giving serial killers a name. I mean, that's all they're looking for is a story, though. No, I no, I totally get that. I'm just saying that's exactly what serial killers love. Right. We should give them stupid names. It's nice to have the media there for the news, but yeah, they can do a lot of damage, too. All right, so here we are, Valley Intruder, right? Yes. On March 27th, 1985, so 10 days after the double murder, attempted murder day, uh, Richard breaks into a house that he had actually burglarized a year earlier that is right outside of Whittier, California, at approximately 2 a.m. He kills Vincent Charles Zazara while he slept, age 64, with the 22 pistol. Zazara's wife, Maxine Lavinia Zazara, was 44. She was, of course, awakened by the gunshot, and Ramirez beat her and bound her hands and demanded that she show him where all her valuables were. So he was going through the room, stealing everything he could find, while Maxine was getting out of whatever he had tied her hands with. And she grabbed a shotgun from under the bed, which was not loaded. So what was the point in having the shotgun under the bed? I guess she was threatening him with it. Yeah. Uh, it didn't scare Ramirez at all. Yeah, well, obviously. It pissed him off. So he shot her three times, and then he went and got a large carving knife from the kitchen and mutilated her body wow. by stabbing her multiple times and then removing her eyes and put them in a jewelry box, which he took with him. Oh, my God. And he actually had that in his apartment when he was arrested. Oh, my God. So he kept that as a souvenir. 
course he did. The autopsy thankfully determined that the mutilations were post-mortem, so she had already died from the gunshot wounds before all that shit happened. But their bodies, Vincent and Maxine's bodies, were both discovered by their son, Peter, who reported it to the police. Um, Ramirez left out of a window, and they found footprints from a pair of Avia sneakers in the flower bed. So the police photographed those footprints and plaster casted them so they could preserve what they looked like. There were bullets that were found at the scene of both murders and they linked those two. That's what proved to them that he was it was the same killer for both. Wow. Here's a fun fact, but LA is known as the serial killer capital of the world. Do you know that? No. It is. LA? Los Angeles is the serial killer capital of the world. Yeah. They come from LA or they kill in LA? Hmm. Fantastic question. Well, just because I can I can see how that would be a like a location of one's killing because if you think about it like a psychopath, they're going to fantasize about somebody that they know or that they can't get to and that's where all the famous people live right so that's what it is is basically in the in the 70s and 80s uh-huh. la was a hotbed for serial killers so that's it was <laughs> i think somebody dubbed it fear city oh, because yeah. it was just there were that many serial killers prominent serial killers in la yeah okay so on may 14th 1985. So again, this was previous one was March 27th. So we're talking 17 days later. Uh, Ramirez returns to Monterey Park. Monterey Park was where uh, Veronica Yu was pulled out of her car. So she was the third victim of that first day. But you said he went back to Monterey Park. So he went back to Monterey Park. And he broke into a the home of Bill Doi, D-O-I. D-O-I. He was 66 years old. And his disabled wife, Lillian, who was 56 years old. Aww. Um, he surprised Bill in his bedroom and shot him in the face with a semi-automatic 22 pistol. Aww. As Bill went for his own handgun. So, old Bill was strapped. And he didn't get his gun out in time. So I guess that's kind of crazy, but Richard was that close to getting shot himself. I mean, imagine if he had made a little bit of noise. Yeah. You're not expecting somebody to be armed, especially not in L.A., I wouldn't think. I guess this was 1985, so I don't know how the gun laws were in L.A. then. But So Ramirez beat Bill Doy unconscious. But he would end up dying from the gunshot. Oh, dear. Ramirez then went into Lillian's bedroom, bound her with thumb cuffs. What is that? Thumb cuffs. They're like little bitty handcuffs, but they're just for your thumbs. That is weird. Thumb cuffs. That is weird as hell. Thumb cuffs. All right. How would one attain such an item? Well, you can buy them right there for $9.99 on uniformswarehouse.com. I guess... Why would one? Well, it, you know, it's a it's a pocket-sized version of handcuffs. A little bitty version. Of, I mean, you could buy six of those, and as a security guard, if you 
catch somebody stealing, you throw some of these on them. If you catch six guys, you got six pairs. They have them on pair. Amazon. They have them on Amazon for thirteen ninety nine. If I order now, they'll be here by Thursday. There you go. Yep. And you can thumb cuff your own criminal. Yeah, but your uh, the rest of your fingers are still free. I don't care if the rest of your fingers are free. That I mean, your whole hand is free in handcuffs. I mean, it accomplishes the same thing as a pair of handcuffs without all the bulk. I feel like that should be more widely used. <laughs> I feel like not only is it not only is it practical and you could put six pair of these things on your belt, but then it's humiliating, right? Is it? Because now you got these little bitty baby things on there, and it's like and you can't do what anything. You got on your hand. You know what I mean? It's like shut up, motherfucker. Leave me it's alone. like when somebody zip ties you. Crazy. It's like you can't do anything now. <laughs> well, I mean the zip ties. It's it's not that weird, but. I feel like thumb cuffs. He puts thumb cuffs on her. Isn't she? I thought you said she was disabled. She was. So then what does he need to more disable her? Um, I don't know how disabled she was. Oh, okay. I guess her hands were able, I guess. And he needed to disable them. <laughs> yeah. So he rapes her and then oh. ransacks the whole house for valuables. Oh. She would survive. Oh, my God. Uh, Bill died of his injuries in the hospital. So the bullet or the gunshot wound killed him. Aww. All right. So May 29th, 1985, 15 days later. So these are all happening a couple weeks at a time here. Every couple weeks. Ramirez drives a stolen car to Monrovia. And stopped at a house at the house of Mabel Ma Bell, age 83, and her again disabled sister, Florence Nettie Lang. She was 81, so 81 and 83 years old. He found a hammer in the kitchen, and he bludgeoned and bound Lang in her bedroom, and then bludgeoned and bound Bell, before using an electrical cord to shock the woman. <gasps> Yeah. What? Well, he's he's a sadist. I mean, the guy is into some... For using an electrical cord? To, how do you just use an electrical cord to shock somebody? Well, I would assume you rip it out of whatever yeah. appliance you want to. You strip the wires. You plug yeah. it into the wall. That's terrible. So after raping Lang, Nettie Lang, he used... Ma Bell's lipstick to draw the satanic pentagram symbol on her thigh, as well as on the walls of both bedrooms. And the women were found two days later, alive, what? but in a coma state, and critically injured. So uh, Ma Bell ended up dying later in the hospital, and Nettie Lang survived. Dang. The next day, so May 30th, 1985, Ramirez drove the exact same stolen car that he used in the previous murders, or murder, uh, to Burbank, California, and he snuck into the home of Carol Kyle. She was 42 years old. Uh, he tied up Kyle and her 11-year-old son with handcuffs and then ransacked the house. He released Carol to direct him to the valuables, where they kept all their valuables. 
and then he raped her repeatedly. Ramirez also repeatedly ordered her not to look at him, telling her at one point that he would cut her eyes out. Oh, my God. And then he fled the scene after taking the child out of the closet and tying the two together with handcuffs. Wow. I mean, I guess on the bright side, they survived, but... Yeah, but would you want to at that point? Right. July 2nd, 1985. Uh, he drove a another stolen car to Arcadia, California, and randomly selected a house. Mm-hmm. That house happened to be owned by a widowed grandmother. She was 75 years old, and her name was Mary Louise Cannon. After sneaking into the house, he found her sleeping in her bedroom, and he beat her until she was unconscious with a lamp, and then stabbed her to death using a butcher knife from her kitchen. Wow. Uh, Ramirez repeatedly stabbed Cannon's body after she was already dead, and her body was found the next day. Do you think that he's, uh, so is he randomly choosing? You said randomly, right? They're just random. I mean, he's, Cause you know, I think Because it seems there's... like he's coming up on, like, older people a lot. Yeah. And I just feel like maybe he's afraid to get his ass whooped again. Possibly. And I know, like, with the Zazara yeah. murders um he had actually burglarized their house yeah a year earlier right so you know it's just it's just thoughts like it well it was probably it's probably random it's probably random and what happened was he had probably already you know who knows how many houses he's burglarizing right these are just the murders right these are just the documented murders these aren't documenting how much stuff was stolen because i'm sure there's tons of that every single night because he's He's doing odd jobs. He's waking up. He's going and getting high. He needs money all the time, right? Yeah. So this isn't – it's not like he's going in and he's killing somebody and stealing their stuff. And then two weeks later, he goes in and he kills somebody else and steals their stuff. He's going in and stealing stuff. And then if there's nobody there or if it's not somebody he's interested in, he moves on. You know what I mean? Or if he doesn't get caught. You know what I mean? Yeah. So – I think these are just the houses that happen to have someone um, – I would almost say they just happen to have a female in the house. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, he's still a coward. Of course. So that was July 2nd, 1985. Now we're on July 5th, so three days later. Ramirez breaks into the house, the house in Sierra Madre and – bludgeons 16 year old Whitney Bennett with a tire iron as she slept in her bed. Wow. Uh, he went to the kitchen and searched for a knife, but I guess he couldn't find one, which just seems weird. What kitchen wouldn't have a knife in it? Uh, so he tries to strangle her with a telephone cord. Um, <laughs> And this gets kind of interesting here, but he was, so he's trying to strangle her with a telephone cord. And he, this was in an interview. He actually was talking about this, but he said that he was startled when he saw sparks 
coming from the cord. Yeah. And then Whitney starts breathing. Oh. And he freaked out, ran out of the house, and he said he thought Jesus Christ had intervened to save her. Okay. I mean, yeah. Well, obviously, though, he's he's not mentally stable anyway. True. So, right. just, it sounds to me that's just his brain's way of trying to process what's happening. So, mm-hmm. he just comes up with the most, you know, elaborate thing he can. But where'd the sparks come from? The mm-hmm. sparks? He probably, there probably weren't even sparks. He probably, Maybe he was high. like, yeah. Maybe so. Okay, well, anyway. Or... Maybe Jesus did intervene to save <laughs> There you go. Yep. I mean, he did intervene with the other ones, but that's fine. Right. What makes her special? Yeah, I mean, when it's your time to go, it's your time to go. But when it is not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Let's get back to this. So, um, so Whitney ends up surviving the episode, although she ended up getting 478 stitches. Oh my God. To close all the lacerations in her scalp from the from the beating with the tire iron. Wow. So July seventh, nineteen eighty five, two days later, uh, Richard goes to burglarize the home of Joyce Lucille Nelson, sixty years old, in Monterey Park again. Uh when he went in, she was sleeping on the couch in the living room, and he beat her to death by stomping on her face repeatedly. Oh, my God. A shoe print from an Avia sneaker, so the same same sneaker, was left on her face. Wow. Yeah. So then he gets back in his stolen car, cruises through a few other neighborhoods, and goes back to Monterey Park, picks another home, turns out to be the home of Sophie Dickman, age 63. He uh, attacks her, handcuffs handcuffs her at gunpoint, and then attempts to rape her. Uh, he steals her jewelry, and then when she told him that he had taken everything of value, he said that she needed to swear on Satan in order to prove it. So she did. Oh. And he left. And she ended up surviving. So. Wow. Believe it or not, he had a lot of surviving victims. Yeah. But he's not caught. Nope. July 20th, 1985. So 13 days after this last one. uh, Richard bought a machete. And drove a stolen Toyota to Glendale, California. Uh, he chose the home of Layla Netting, Knitting, K-N-E-I-D-I-N-G. I'm going to say Netting. Nating. And her husband, Maxon. Nating. Needing. Layla Needing. Whatever. I don't know. 66 years old. Her husband, Maxim, was 68 years old. He, like, charged into their bedroom and started hacking him up with the machete. Wow. 
and then shot them both in the head with the 22 caliber pistol. Jeez. Uh, after he kills them, he just basically kept chopping and just chopped them up. Uh, robbed the house and then took off. Wow. When he leaves there, he goes straight to Sun Valley. And at 4.15 a.m., he breaks into the home of the Covenant, Covenant family. K-H-O-V-A-N-A-N-T-H. Covenant. Yeah, I'm the wrong one to ask. So he, he breaks into the Covenant family home. He shoots Chainarong. C-H-A-I-N-A-R-O-N-G. Chainarong. Okay. Chainarong Covenant. I just, that's so weird. We're going to call him Chain. Yep. Chain was sleeping, and Richard shoots him in the head with a twenty-five caliber pistol. Wow. So, a different pistol this time. Killed him instantly, mm-hmm. and then he repeatedly raped and beat Somkid Covenant. Mm-hmm. So, Chain Arong and Somkid were married. Okay. So, he raped and beat Somkid and then he ties up their eight-year-old son before dragging some kid around the house to show him where all the valuables are. Wow. Uh, he took all their valuables, and then he made her swear on Satan again that she wasn't hiding anything, which she did, and he left. What would she be hiding? So, like hiding more valuables? V- valuables, yeah. Jewelry, money. Whatever. Anything he can trade for cocaine. Yeah. Alright, so August 6th, 1985. So 16 days, 16, 17 days after his previous one. He drove to Northridge and broke into the home of Chris and Virginia Peterson. Uh, he snuck into their bedroom and Virginia woke up and he shot her in the face with the 25 caliber pistol. And then he shot Chris in the neck and then he tried to run. And I guess Chris grabbed him and fought back. Yeah. Uh, so he tried to shoot him twice more and missed both times. And then Ramirez ended up getting away. They both ended up surviving that attack. I can't imagine getting shot in the face and surviving. Yeah. It happens more often than you would think, though. Yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, there's no vital organs in your face, right? So anything that doesn't go into your brain or into your... Your spinal cord, right? Think about... Or absolutely demolish your blood vessels. There was that that show I watched on Netflix where the the teenager tried to kill himself and shot himself in the... the, Like, through the mouth, and he survived. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's... There was a... There was one that I heard about, and it was a guy that rented a hotel room for the night and decided to kill himself, so he had a shotgun. So the investigators had gotten there and they couldn't figure out what it was because it didn't look like a suicide because there was blood all over the hotel room, right? But he was shot in the head. The door was locked. Nobody else was in there and he was laying on the bed. Well, they found out later he had two gunshot wounds to his head that they they didn't find out until later. The autopsy found that there were more BBs in there than were in a typical shell, that shell. And so he had actually shot himself twice. And what had happened was he shot himself the first time and it knocked him unconscious. But when he woke up, he got up, walked to the bathroom, looked in the mirror and saw himself 
and realized, holy shit, and then shot himself again. And that's what, wow. that's why there was blood everywhere. It looked like a murder, but it was actually a suicide. He shot himself twice. Anyway, August 8th, so two days after this last one, on August 8th, he drives another stolen car to Diamond Bar, California, picked the home of Sakina Abawath. These names are insane. <laughs> Sakina Abawath, 27 years old, and her husband, Elias Abawath, 31. Sometime around 2.30 a.m., he broke into the house. He walked into the master bedroom, instantly killed Elias with a shot to the head with the 25 caliber pistol, handcuffed and beat Sakina uh, while forcing her to go around the house and reveal locations of their jewelry and their valuables, rapes her, and then repeatedly demanded that she swear on Satan that she wouldn't scream during his, I guess, this whole thing, this attack. Wow. Uh, their three-year-old son walked into the bedroom and Richard tied him up and then continued to rape Sakina. And after Richard left, Sakina untied her son and sent him to the neighbor's house for help. They both survived. Elias was killed instantly. On August 18th, 1985, they said that Richard had been kind of keeping an eye on the media coverage, and it was getting pretty intense. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine with the amount of assaults and murders that are going on, he is probably the only story they talk about, right? Yeah. So he decided on August 18th, 1985, to go back to San Francisco to try to get the heat off of him a little bit. So he broke into the home of Peter and Barbara Pan. Yeah, that's how that's how you get the heat off of you. Right. Just, just you just go, go somewhere, somewhere else. else and do the same shit you've already been doing. Exactly. So he shot Peter in the temple with a twenty five caliber pistol, killing him instantly. And then he beat and sexually assaulted Barbara uh, before shooting her in the head and then leaving her for dead at the crime scene. So she was 62 and he was 66. Wow. See what I mean? Like he, first of all, he's a coward because like I said, he keeps going after older people. You know what I mean? Right. So I feel like he's 100% afraid to get his ass beat. And you can't tell me that everything about the houses that he's going into is 100% random because no, how I, does he randomly end up with older people that are almost disabled or if not disabled? Well, I'm sure, I'm sure he's casing these houses beforehand, right? But at the same time, he is going into houses with, even though they're older, I mean, 66 is not that old. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree. It's, these houses aren't random, but I think I think there's a lot more houses that he's going into that he's just stealing stuff from. Yeah. And these just happen to be the ones that he ends up killing somebody, and that's the one that gets the story. Because I'm sure he's not raping and murdering every single person he comes across. He's he's picking and choosing. Yeah. But I'm sure if we had a timeline of every single house he burglarized, it would be off the charts insane for the amount of time that we're talking about here. So, 62-year-old Peter Pan. Peter Pan? 
Yeah. See, when doing my research and I read Peter and Barbara Pan, I write Peter and Barbara Pan. Yeah. I don't realize this <laughs> motherfucker killed part of my childhood. <laughs> he killed Peter Pan. Well, okay. So, have you ever, like, really looked at what Peter Pan is? Oh, God. Are you going to tell me he's a pedophile? No. What? So, he's he's helping dead children move on. Huh? I mean... Like, it's... I don't know. I mean, here's here's the thing. How long has it been since you've seen Peter Pan? I mean, it's been a long time, but... Um, like, it's one of those things, like, as an adult, you realize what it's actually about. Right. Right. And... It's a, so like it's like you know like the Lost Boys, right? Mm-hmm. They don't grow up; they stay children because <laughs> they're dead. <laughs> that would be hilarious if that was actually the case. No, that's that's true. That's actually the case. Yes. Wow. So like the original Peter Pan before it, it was turned into a children's movie, children's book, children's tale. The original yeah. Peter Pan book is super, super sinister. Wow. Okay, so moving on. So uh, after after leaving Peter dead and Barbara basically four dead, mm-hmm. he shot her in the head and just left her laying there. He used lipstick to draw a pentagram on the wall, and he wrote the phrase, Jack the Knife, on the bedroom wall. Again, Ramirez left a shoe print at the scene that detectives found and then they matched it to a specific pair of avia shoes that wasn't real common at the time. So I don't know how they didn't figure this out before, but Frank Salerno and Gil Carrillo, who were on the the Netflix Night Stalker hunt for the serial killer show. Yeah, I haven't watched that by uh, the way. Well, they they contacted Avia, the or the manufacturer that makes Avia shoes, and they were a, they were actually able to get a pair of the soles, right? Uh-huh. And when Avia figured out the the make of the of the shoe that they're talking about, they kind of looked into the distribution across the United States, and only 6 pairs of those specific Avia shoes were distributed in size 11 and a half across the United States. Six pair. Five of them were shipped to locations in Arizona, and one pair was shipped to a shoe store in Los Angeles. <laughs> How crazy is that? Six pair? I mean, this is a pair of rare shoes. Six yeah. pair? Wow. That must have been super expensive. You would think, but this shoe's broke. So how would somebody like that end up with them? I mean, it... I guess he maybe he's That's stole what I'm saying. Them. If there were six pair made, you would think that like, okay, the president gets one. <laughs> Oprah well, gets no. one. Unless it was like a like one of those scenarios where like it, it fumbled and so it got sent to all the like goodwill type places. Right. Okay, so anyway, so they so they figured out there's six pairs. One pair was shipped to LA, a shoe store in LA. And it was pretty obvious that that one pair of of eleven and a half avias uh, was the only pair in California, and it was 
owned by Ramirez, right? So they knew this is what we're looking for. Uh, when when they figured out, like when it was when they discovered the the ballistics and the shoe print evidence from all these crime scenes matched the crime scene in San Francisco, San Francisco's mayor Diane Feinstein actually divulged that information on the news. So she came out and said, you know, it was a 25 caliber pistol, and it was a specific pair of size 11 and a half avia sneakers the detectives were pissed because obviously this killer's following the news right yeah. obviously he's going to be kind of watching to see if he's getting caught for these different things <laughs> so they knew there goes that evidence right yeah and ramirez who had been watching the news coverage dropped his pair of size 11 and a half avia sneakers over the side of the Golden Gate Bridge that night. Uh, okay. Apparently, he stayed in L.A. or stayed in San Francisco for a few more days before heading back to L.A. So on August 24th, Ramirez goes south to L.A. in a stolen orange Toyota to Mission Viejo. He showed up at the home of James Ramiro Jr. Ramiro's son, 13-year-old James Ramiro III, uh, happened to be awake. He heard Ramirez's footsteps outside the house. So, thinking correctly that there was a prowler, he ran and woke his parents up, and Richard fled. So he took off. Uh, I'm guessing James Jr., the father, ran outside, and he saw the car. So he kind of kept a mental note of the color, the make, and the style of the car. As well as he had a partial license plate number, so he calls the police with this information, thinking that he had chased away a thief. Nailed that one. So after this thing went down, Richard broke into the house of Bill Carnes, age 30, uh, and his fiancée, Inez Erickson, she was 29. He broke in through the back door. Uh, he walked into the bedroom, woke up Carnes when he cocked his pistol, and he shot Carnes three times in the head before turning to Inez. Uh, Ramirez told her that he was the Night Stalker and forced her to swear that she loved Satan as he beat the shit out of her and bound her with neckties from the closet. That's so weird he's forcing people to swear on Satan. Like he He's psychotic. Like, the dude is a, yeah. he's a psychopath. There's no... Right. I mean, he's... He's been raised in such a fucked up scenario that maybe he found religion, but the religion he found was a little fucked. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. If you have no direction in life, maybe he thought he found direction in Satan. I mean, with his shit life and, and you know, being beat by his dad and moving out and having all this fucked up shit happen to happen to him. Yeah. Maybe... Maybe he wanted to be as far away from God as he could, as he could be, and that's where he landed. I don't know. Uh, so he basically stole everything he could find, drug Inez around the house to find every bit of everything they had, made her swear on Satan that there was nothing else, and then raped her. And before he left, he said, tell him the Night Stalker was here. He's owning it now, right? Like he's yeah. basically... I don't know. He's proud of what's going on. Right. So Inez untied herself, ran to the neighbor's house, 
to get help. And surgeons actually removed two of the three bullets from Bill Carn's head, and he survived his injuries. So shot three times in the head, two bullets removed. I guess one stayed in, and he survived. Lucky dude. You know what I'm thinking? Hmm. I'm thinking he is horrible at his serial killer job. <laughs> And he needs to seek a new profession. Well, because he has more people have survived his attacks than anything else. Well, so let's far. keep in mind too. He's using he's using a twenty five caliber pistol. I don't know if you know what that is. Do you know what that is? No. Well, you it's know what small. a twenty two is. You've seen a twenty two. Yeah. A twenty five is about half as long. The width of the bullet is a little bit wider, but the length of the bullet is short as hell. So think of a 22 with a little bit more slug and way less powder. So yeah, they're not killing weapons. Like a 25, a 22 is hard enough to do enough damage with. A 25, they're super weak pistols. They're just there's it's something real small you can put in a pocket and conceal easily, but they're not real deadly. So if he was really worried about killing all these people, if that was his main motivation, he chose the wrong weapon. Yeah. But, I mean, I think he's he gets more out of the, you know, beating the hell out of them than anything else, I think. So that's just kind of the quick... And it's it seems like the 25 does a good job of at least incapacitating them, if not knocking them out, right? So... He just uses it as a quick, a quick stop, whether it kills him or yeah. not. He doesn't care. So Inez gets taken to the police station, and she gave a very detailed description of Richard Ramirez. And police got a new cast of Ramirez's foot from the Romero house. Uh, the stolen car, so the orange Toyota, mm -hmm. uh, was found abandoned on August 28th in Koreatown in LA and police found a single fingerprint on the rearview mirror, even though Richard had spent a lot of time wiping that car clean of all of his prints. The print was identified as belonging to Richard Ramirez, who was described as a 25 year old drifter from Texas with a long rap sheet <laughs> that included many arrests for traffic and illegal drug violations. <laughs> That's That's it. Okay. So on August 29th, officials decided to release the mugshot of Richard from a 1984 arrest for auto theft to the media. And that's that famous mugshot? It's a good question. I think so. I think it's the one that everybody's seen of him. Yeah. It's on the cover of the books that have been written right. about him, and I think it's the cover of the Netflix series. Yep. Another one of him... Without a cut on his where nose. Where he... Where he is showing his teeth and it, they're real bad. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So on August 29th, 1985, officials decided to release uh, the mugshot from 1984 for auto theft to the media. And that's when the Night Stalker got a face, right? So that's when everybody found out who they were dealing with and what he looked like. Yeah. So on August 30th, 1985, Ramirez took a bus to Tucson, Arizona to visit his brother. 
Apparently, he did not realize that he had become the lead story in basically every newspaper news program across California, right? Yeah. So he didn't even that wasn't a thing. He just was going to be, to to meet his brother in Tucson. And then his brother was not home. So Ramirez got on a bus and headed back to Los Angeles. Apparently he walked past some police officers that were staking out the bus terminal trying to catch him if he attempted to flee. Yeah. They're there to catch him, and yet he walks right past them. Wow. Uh, he goes into a convenience store in East L.A., and he noticed a group of like older Hispanic women. Yeah. And they were pointing at him and saying El Matador, which is literally the killer in Spanish. Yeah. So one of them was holding the newspaper, and he saw his face on the front page with a headline calling him in Invasor Nocturno or Night Invader. It said it was the newspaper, the LA Opinion. Yeah. So I don't know if the LA Opinion is Spanish, but I guess maybe it has, maybe it comes out in Spanish and English. Yeah. I mean, it could have been either. Yeah. Anyway, so he runs out of the store. He ran across the the Santa Ana Freeway or I-5 and he attempted to steal a Ford Mustang. So he was jerked out of the car, and I guess he took off running again. All right, so this is like one big movie scene almost, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. He, he runs out of the store, takes off running, crosses the highway. He tries yeah. to steal a Mustang, and somebody grabs him and jerks him out of the Mustang. So he takes off running. He tries to steal the keys from this chick, and then her husband sees it. He runs over. He hits Richard Ramirez over the head with a fence post. Ooh. Like, where do you find a fence post? There's just fence posts laying around? Like, sure. What? <laughs> was, this sounds this 100% like an action movie. I know. It's like. <sighs> and he can't take on anybody but older people, right. apparently. Like I said. Yeah. So he hits him over the head with a fence post. And then a group of <laughs> over 10 people form and chase Ramirez down Hubbard Street in the Boyle Heights. So the group of residents captured and held down Richard Ramirez and beat yeah. the dog shit out of him. You know what would have made that easier? What? A fence post? If they had all, if their pockets had all been full of thumb cuffs. True. See, everyone can own and carry at least one pair of thumb cuffs. You have room. I guarantee it. Put a little pocket clip on them. Good to go. And we can all just thumb there cuff each other. Yep. How annoying would that be? Somebody just walk up and thumb cuff you and be like, bitch. Because you can't do it. You can't do nothing. It. You're like, God damn it, now what? You can't even run well. Anyway, see, they could have thumb cuffed him. Nobody was carrying thumb cuffs, but that's okay. So they beat the shit out of this guy, right? Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't... Nobody really mentions what time all this went down, but the cops show up. They were called and told that there was a fight going on. Oh, hey, there's a fight down here. Yeah. So the cops show up and they find him damn near beat to death. And they took him into custody. They said that by the time the cops had gotten him in custody, the crowd had grown to several hundred people. Wow. And I think the people were trying to kill Ramirez, even while yeah. he was in custody of the cops. So, uh, yeah. So that's how they caught him. So they've got him in custody. So civilians caught him. Civilians caught him. 
Okay, so he goes to court. Everything's kind of going to plan. They've got the jury. They've they're getting everything taken care of. They're doing their their court stuff, right? Yeah. And on August 14th, the trial was abruptly interrupted because one of the jurors, Phyllis Singletary, did not show up at the courtroom. So later that day, they found her and she was shot and killed in her apartment. <gasps> what? So of course this freaks the whole jury out. Everybody's scared to death. They think, holy shit, Ramirez has connections. Like this dude's you know what I mean? Like he's yeah. he's directing this kind of thing from a from a prison cell. Yeah. Uh, and then they found out shortly afterwards that she had actually been shot and killed by her boyfriend, who later committed suicide with the same weapon the in a hotel. So just random, had nothing like, to do with it. What are the odds, it. though? Right. right. And he's just sitting there, and he's like, uh. No, I didn't kill that one. <laughs> and you know <laughs> the crazy thing. Me. And then the the jury that they replaced her with was too frightened to return to her home. I don't know what that means. I don't know what she, did she get a hotel room? Did she stay in the jury in the in the courtroom for the entire thing? I mean, we're talking weeks here. It's weird. I don't know. It's odd, but yeah. Uh, okay. Really so weird. once the trial actually started, Richard Ramirez appeared in the court and he had a pentagram drawn on his palm and he yelled hail satan which if you're trying to get away with murder this is the perfect tactic because no one would suspect a thing yeah i mean hail satan nobody's <laughs> nobody's convicting you buddy nobody <laughs> so he was convicted of 13 counts of murder 5 counts of attempted murder 11 counts of sexual assault and 14 counts of burglary Wow. Do they have death in California? Yes. 19 death sentences. 19. Not one life sentence. Not two. Not five. Not 15. 19 death sentences. It's a lot. So, kind of some interesting facts, but by the time of the trial, Richard Ramirez, just like every other serial killer, had fans that were writing him letters and Ugh. showing up to visit him. So, in 1985... So that, that first year, Doreen Leoy uh, wrote him nearly 75 letters. Oh, my God. And in 1988, Ramirez proposed to her. So this is after he was convicted. He proposed to her. And on October 3rd, 1996, they were married. In prison? In prison. In San Quentin State Prison. I don't think that should be allowed. Yeah, I kind of agree. So for many years after he died... Uh, Doreen would say that she would commit suicide whenever Richard was executed. Aww. But She's still alive, ain't she? Well, she actually left him in 2009 after the DNA confirmation of the May Leung murder. <laughs> so remember, that wasn't involved in any of the charges because they didn't even know about her at the time. Yeah. So in 2009, when they found out that he had murdered and raped a nine-year-old, she left him. Which, hey... She has a little bit of sense, right? Mm. But he actually got engaged later to Christine Lee, who was a 23-year-old writer. On August 7, 2006, he would put in his first round of, of appeals. And they, of course, all ended unsuccessfully. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He even had appeals pending all the way up to the time of his death. Psychiatrist Michael H. Stone described Ramirez as a made psychopath. 
as opposed to a born psychopath. Oh. He said that Ramirez's schizoid personality disorder contributed to his indifference to the suffering of his victims and his untreatability. Stone also stated that Ramirez was knocked unconscious and almost died on multiple occasions before he was six years old. And as a result, he later developed temporal lobe epilepsy, aggressivity, Ooh. and hypersexuality. So not only are we talking about being raised by a full-on serial killer, murderer, mutilator, rapist, and a peeping Tom, uh -huh. but multiple times before he was even six years old, he had already been unconscious and almost died on multiple occasions. So brain trauma and raised by two psychopaths gets you a psychopath, or wow. technically three psychopaths if you're talking about his dad. So Ramirez died June 7th, 2013 due to complications secondary to B-cell lymphoma. What is that? Lung cancer? So he wasn't even... 53 years old. So he... <sighs> he wasn't even put to death officially? No. <sighs> I mean, that happens all the time. That happens all the time. There's people on death row for 30, 40 years, and then they die. Yeah. Still makes me sad. Uh, he had been on death row for twenty more than twenty three years, and they said even if he had been executed, it would have been he would have been in his early seventies because of California's laws and their appeals process. Yeah. Fun factoid: Miguel Ramirez, the Vietnam serial murderer slash rapist, yeah. was buried a war hero after what? he died. Yeah. Well, he was a decorated Green Beret. Well, if. Um, Apparently, his entire company had been ambushed in Vietnam, and him and one other guy were the only two that survived, so he got a medal. But that's a pretty sick fact, considering he built a serial killer, as well as obviously being one himself. So, if we can petition to have, you know, things removed that pertain to, like... I don't think the government would give a shit. Plus, they can't prove it. And here's the thing. So, so this is another thing, is those photos, the, the Polaroids that he took in Vietnam... Yeah. They were never seen by police. <gasps> and from what I gathered, after Miguel, or after Mike, or whoever, whatever we want to call him, after he was sent to the mental hospital, Richard's father, Julian, would have been the most likely person to have cleaned out his apartment, which would make it likely that not only did he see those photos, but he either destroyed them himself or at a minimum kept them secret. Yeah. Because that's where they would have been. They would have been in that apartment. He would have been the one to clean out that apartment. So at a minimum, I would say R Richard Ramirez's father knew about those photos. At a minimum, he knew about them and didn't tell anybody. Right. So. Wow. I mean, I just can't even fathom. I, ugh. He's a beast. He's a monster. He's a pile of shit. Yeah. But he was created by other piles of shit who were never held accountable Right. I don't know. So. Mm -mm -mm. I mean, he was definitely, like you said, made. Right. So. So that's the story of the Night Stalker. Yeah. Crazy. I like doing these just because you've heard the name, you know of him, <clears throat> but yeah. how many people actually know the story? You know what I mean? All right. Well, on to the next. Yeah. Yeah. Cool.